Welcome to the 160th podcast and 130th as a city on a hill church. Many of us see this as some very dark times. Perhaps we lost friends and loved ones to the coronavirus. If you have, our sincere condolences in Christ. Knowing that God works all things out to the purpose of his will, you may be wondering why would God allow this pandemic to occur? Of course, we may never know all his reasons, but in what we believe could very well be the end times, one reason is certain, and has always been certain when dark times have visited this world. Pastor Mike explores this in the fourth of his Let Not Your Heart Be Troubled series, which he's entitled, For Such a Time as This. Here is Pastor Michael Clark. As Pastor Bob mentioned, I have been doing a series here on Wednesday nights uh, for the last uh, several weeks. I think this will be the fourth message in the series, and I believe this will probably be the last message uh, that I'll teach in the series, Let Not Your Heart Be Troubled. And then um, probably next Wednesday night, I'll start back again in the book of Isaiah, and we'll pick up where we left off. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 1, before the coronavirus uh, became an issue for us. We were in Isaiah here on Wednesday nights. So this will be the last message, unless uh, the Lord uh, leads me to, to do otherwise. Uh, but this will be the fourth and final message in the series uh, entitled, Let Not Your Heart Be Troubled. And I want to start tonight actually in the Old Testament, back in the book of Esther. And I've entitled the message this evening, For such a time as this, for such a time as this, and if you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Esther, and Esther is right before the book of Job and right before the book of Psalms. If you open your Bible in the middle, you should be in the book of Psalms. Hang a left and you'll find Esther, a couple books uh, to the left of Psalms. Esther chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Say this. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther. Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, chapters one and two of the book of Esther, we're not going to go through the first couple chapters here, but uh, just to summarize an overview of how we got here to this event where uh, Esther has to make the decision to go before the queen, uh, before the king, rather, she's the queen, uh, uninvited to go before King Asher Harris uh, really was a potential death sentence, capital punishment to go before the king of Persia uh, without an invitation. And, and so to, to get to this point in chapters one and two, we see how these providential events all came together uh, to make Esther the queen of really the the known world at this time. This is when the Persians were ruling the world as the world power, uh, uh, the 5th century B.C. or so. And 
And Esther was a young, beautiful, young Jewish woman uh, who really had no plans to become the queen, no uh, real uh, idea that she was going to become the queen. And yet God lined things up for the very purpose of bringing uh, Esther into the king's palace as the queen of Persia in order to uh, position her to save God's people, the Jews, from an extermination event, an annihilation, a holocaust uh, that was being uh, uh, prepared by the, the enemy of the Jews. And so in the first two chapters, we read how Esther came to be queen, that Vashti, the, the other beautiful queen of uh, Asherharis or uh, Xerxes, uh, the king of Persia, how she, Vashti, refused to come to the king's table when he was throwing a big party and he had all of his buddies there, all of his friends, and they were all drinking. And uh, he wanted to show off the beauty of his wife, the Queen Vashti. And Queen Vashti basically rebelled. She said, no, I'm not going to go and uh, and parade in front of all of your, you know, drunken friends. And she basically refused the, ref- the request of her husband, the king. Uh, and as such, she was banished. The king uh, banished Vashti. Uh, basically uh, put her away and began looking for a new queen, a new wife. And uh, um, in the end, Esther was the one that was chosen. She was beautiful. She was sweet. Uh, she was smart. And she had the favor uh, of God upon her. If you read in the first couple of chapter, chapters of Esther, you see that God had really positioned her in a place where she was favored among all of the other young virgins or the young maidens who were coming to be considered by the king as he was looking to replace his rebellious queen Vashti with a new uh, queen. And so Esther became the queen over the most powerful nation on earth at that time. Everything was going well uh, for her. Until uh, we are introduced to this character named Haman. We read in chapter three of the book of Esther in verse one. After these things, King Asherharis promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. Verse 6. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Asherah, the people of Mordecai. And so uh, now we begin to see the reason that God has raised up Esther, a Jew, really from obscurity, from an obscure place, from an obscure family, in a very unusual way. She was selected to be the queen of Persia. 
And now we see that um, her uh, loyalties and her faith would be put to the test because uh, this is her cousin. Mordecai is her cousin. It's her uh, Esther was um, basically um, Mordecai's brother's daughter uh, or, yeah, Mordecai's brother's daughter. So she, this would make her Mordecai's uh, cousin. And she, Mordecai was much older than her. She was a younger woman. She was uh, apparently orphaned. And Mordecai raised her as his own daughter. And so she's a Jew and she's now in this position as queen. Uh, she has not revealed her national identity to anyone. Uh, Mordecai told her to keep it quiet about your nationality, that you're Jewish. Um, and so uh, really now we begin to see that Satan is going to try and use this man, Haman, to basically annihilate the Jews to eradicate them. This is where the Jews get the Feast of Purim from, which was just celebrated back in February, usually celebrated by the Jews uh, in Israel in mid to late February, early March. The Feast of Purim is all about this story because uh, had Esther uh, not stood up to uh, Haman, the Jews would have been wiped out or uh Salvation would have come for the Jews through someone else and Esther would have been wiped out, even as Mordecai uh, told her in chapter four and verse 14. But really, uh, her faith was put to the test. Would she be willing to stand up for her people, even if it would cost her her life? We read in chapter four and verse one of Esther, when Mordecai learned all that had happened He tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, the reason is. Because Haman went to the king. Remember, Haman is the king's right hand man. Uh, Haman went to the king and he said, I have a plan to eradicate these people, the Jews, because he was so incensed that Mordecai would not bow to him. Mordecai would not pay him homage. And Mordecai was a very devout Jew. Uh, again, this is Esther's older cousin. And and so he decides, I don't want to just kill Mordecai. I want to kill all of Mordecai's family. And so we know this is a very satanic attack uh, where they want to wipe out the whole nation of, of Israel, all of the Jews, because of a slight, a personal slight against Haman. And so uh, Haman uh, gets the king to agree to make an edict to kill all of the Jews on this certain specific day uh, that would that would be uh, coming up. And basically, the Jews were not allowed to defend themselves. They were not allowed to arm themselves. Uh, and they were just going to be slaughtered uh, by these people there uh, who were operating under the orders of the king to kill the Jews and take all their wealth. And it was a very diabolical plot, a very evil plot. And it would have been certainly an existential threat to the existence of the Jews and even the promised Messiah that would come through the Jews. So we read that the Jews are wailing, they're fasting, they're weeping, they're laying in sackcloth and ashes, which is a form of humility and prayer before God, just crying out to God for mercy. And we read in verse four of chapter four. 
So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her what was happening, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and to take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hathach went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. Verse eight, he also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan so that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and that he might command her to go into the king and to make supplication to him and to plead before him for her people. So Hathach returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and gave him a command from Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants... And the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may yet live. Yet I myself have not been called to go in to see the king for these 30 days." So they told Mordecai Esther's words. So basically, Mordecai is wanting Esther to go and plead before the king for the safety and the salvation of her people and of his people, the Jews. There's an order that's been given. It's an edict with the king's seal. The uh, edicts and declarations and commandments of the kings of the Persians could not be undone. They could not be overturned. And so even if the king had changed his mind about eradicating uh, the Jews because he'd been counseled to do so by uh, the corrupt, wicked Haman, who was his advisor. Uh, Even if he wanted to change his mind, he really couldn't undo uh, the order or the edict because the kings of Persia, their their, uh, law said that the king can't even overturn his own laws. What he says stands. And so really the Jews were just looking for the permission of the king to defend themselves so they could take up arms and they could fight against those who were trying to eradicate them or would be trying to eradicate them. And Esther is basically sending a message back to her cousin Mordecai to say, I can't go before the king unless he calls me. And again, this was another rule uh, of the Persian kings. You could not enter into the king's court, even if you were the queen, unless the king summoned you. And the king had not summoned her for the last 30 days. And she said, uh, basically, tell Mordecai that there's there's one law uh, that all are put to death if you're not summoned by the king, but you go into his presence before his throne, you're going to be put to death unless the king decides to extend his golden scepter to you uh, and, and then you may live. So Mordecai's answer is where we started uh, earlier when we started the message in verse 13. Mordecai says to tell Esther this. Do not think in your heart you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews 
from another place. See, there was all kinds of prophecies about the Messiah and the nation of Israel that had to still be fulfilled. And so uh, Mordecai was a man of God. He was a man of faith. He was a man of the word. And he basically says to Esther, look, God's going to deliver his people somehow. Uh, if he doesn't, if you don't have the courage to go forward and stand up for your people, God will raise somebody else up. But then you and your household will perish. And then he, he asked her this question. Yet who knows whether you have come to this kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go and gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will likewise fast. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did according to all that Esther had commanded. So this is a really famous story because of the choice that Esther had to make. God obviously put Esther in this place. God raised her up. She was really taking her life into her own hands by going before the king, unsummoned, unbidden to come into his presence. Uh, and yet, um, maybe God put her there for such a time as this. That's what her cousin was telling her. Maybe you're here in the king's court. You have the king's ear uh, for such a time as this, because God has placed you here to save your people and my people. And by the way, if you don't save them, God will raise up salvation through someone else, because God was going to save his people from uh, from this genocide. And uh, beautiful, sweet, uh, trusting Queen Esther said, if I perish, I perish. She says, just please pray for me and fast for me. And I'm going to go to the king and make my request that Haman be exposed and that the people uh, of of God, God's chosen people, uh, are saved and are able to defend themselves. So Esther becomes a great example to us all of a woman of God and a woman filled with faith and trusting the Lord. She had to choose whether she would save her own people uh, at the potential cost of her own life versus keeping quiet and saving her own life, but her her people being destroyed. And it was a very real uh, uh, dilemma for her uh, because she was scared that that even though she was the queen that uh, that she would be killed if she was not bidden to come into the king. Uh, and of course, we know how the story ends uh, uh, that God spared Israel, uh, that uh, Haman was taken and hung upon the gallows that he had built to kill Mordecai. Haman and his sons were killed on the same gallows that uh, he was building to kill Mordecai and the Jews. And uh, uh, Queen Esther did go before the king and King Asherharis extended his golden scepter and let her speak. And, uh, and it's a great story. And the Jews were saved and Esther was vindicated and it all ended well. Uh, for the Jews, but it was a it was a very difficult situation that Esther found herself in. If she was keeping quiet and saving her own life, perhaps her people uh, would would be killed. And so she stepped out in faith. She did the right thing. She believed that God had put her into this position for such a time as this, and God used her in a powerful way. Now. Um, we're in a unique time in history right now as the church in America, the church around the world, where we have this coronavirus, we have the economy shut down, we have all of this uncertainty, we have physical distancing that we've never uh, experienced before, uh, probably since 
the uh, 1918, 1919 Spanish flu. But even then, they didn't have the sort of social distancing, physical distancing uh, that we are experiencing right now. It's a very unusual time. Churches can't meet together in person. We have Easter Sunday service last Sunday, and we're doing it online with pretty much an empty sanctuary. And this is true for churches all over the world. Uh, it is a very unusual time for us to live in. And uh, yet, for such a time as this, God has called us to be his hands and his feet, to be those people who would speak his word, who would let our light shine in this dark world, who would not fear and who would not worry uh, about ourselves. Even as Esther was not worried about herself, she wanted to do what was right before God. And so we, too, have this opportunity to not worry about ourselves. We want to use wisdom, of course, and take the government's precautions and so forth and keep ourselves uh, uh, out of harm's way as much as possible. But we're not afraid. We're not anxious. We're not worried uh, about what's happening. We trust that the Lord is in charge and that the Lord has providentially put all of us in the positions wherever you are as a Christian for such a time as this. Now, it's interesting if you uh, study this character, Haman, and you kind of go back to the roots of, of who Haman is. Um, and, and we're not going to hold our place here in Esther, but Haman, we're told, uh, is an Agagite. He's an Agagite in verse th- uh, chapter three, verse one. After these things, King Asherah promoted Haman, the son of uh, Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, the Agagites were not really necessarily a, a people that were recognized in the ancient world, but the Jews who wrote this down as their history and their record knew exactly who an Agagite was. An Agagite was a descendant of King Agag, who was a terrible uh, enemy of the Amalekites. The king of the Amalekites was King Agag, who was a terrible enemy and persecutor of the Jews throughout their history. And if you go back to... Uh, the story of King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And you're welcome to turn there with me if you'd like. 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 14. We see the story of King Saul where God orders King Saul to destroy the Amalekites, including uh, their king, King Agag. And King Saul disobeys the direct command of God. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 15, And verse 14, Samuel, the prophet said, what then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen, which I hear? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel and did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said to you, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. 
Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, but I've obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on a mission on which the Lord sent me. And I have brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Verse 24, then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned for I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being the king over Israel. And so this is really where the kingdom was uh, taken from Saul and given to King David, although that didn't happen immediately. It took a, a period of, of, of years, actually, before David uh, uh, succeeded uh, king Saul as the king. But God had removed his hand from Saul at this point because of King Saul's um, utter disobedience to God's command. Uh, God had commanded uh, the king to wipe out their enemies, totally wipe them out and to, to not spare anyone and even to wipe out all of the animals and everything. Don't don't take anything for yourselves, God said. Everything uh, that is tied to Amalek and the Amalekites is under a curse or a ban. You can't touch it. It's not for you. Destroy them all. And King Saul uh, disobeyed the voice of God. He decided he was going to go it his own way. He was going to choose to spare some and let some live and uh, and let some of the animals live and so forth. And God punished him as a result. But Amalek uh, becomes a type or a picture in the Old Testament of a type of the flesh or a picture of the flesh. And so whenever we look at the Old Testament, we see shadows and types that we can have application for in the New Testament. And Amalek becomes a type of or a picture of or a shadow of the flesh. And so this story then becomes uh, the idea that the flesh must be completely destroyed for God's people. We can't make provision for the flesh. We can't make exceptions for the flesh. We can't give allowances for the flesh. The flesh, there's nothing good with, for the flesh to be done except for the flesh to be killed, for it to be mortified, crucified. And this is really the picture or the story that comes from this from the Old Testament. Now, the interesting thing is, is that King Saul, had he completely obeyed God, would not have been killed, uh, as it were, by an Amalekite. Because he didn't obey the voice of the Lord, uh, basically his sin came back to bite him, as sin always does. And we read in Second Samuel chapter 1 that it was none other than an Amalekite uh, who kills King Saul. Second Samuel chapter 1 and verse 6 
this is where David is getting the news that King Saul and uh, and Saul's sons uh, had been slaughtered. They'd been killed in battle. And David is getting the news here in Second Samuel, chapter one, verse six. Then the young man who told him said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. Now, when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me and he answered and said, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? This is King Saul talking to this young man. King Saul says, who are you? So I answered him and I said, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me again, please stand over me and kill me for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. Uh, King Saul tried to kill himself. He fell upon his own spear, his own sword, and he didn't die uh, because he was defeated in battle and he didn't want to be killed and tortured and tormented by his enemies. And so he falls on his his own spear, but he's still alive. And this young man comes up upon him, recognizes this is the king of Israel before him. And the king of Israel says, please kill me for anguish has come upon me. Verse 10, the Amalekite says, so I stood over him and I killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. He's bringing them to David, who's the new king of Israel. And therefore, David took hold of his own clothes and he tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Then David said to the young man who told him, uh, where are you from? And he answered, I am the son of an alien and a Malachite. So David said to him, how was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Verse 15, then David called one of the young men and said, go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. And so because Saul didn't obey God fully, because Saul didn't do what God commanded him to do to wipe out entirely the Amalekites, uh, at the end of his life, he's killed by an Amalekite. And so there, there are, you know, many pictures here, many types. Now, the king uh, of the Amalekites was named King Agag. And we know that Haman in Esther's day, many hundreds of years later, Esther's day, uh, there's Haman, who is an Agagite, who is somehow a relative of this king of the Amalekites from a thousand years earlier or 700 years earlier. And uh, and so had they been obedient, had Saul been obedient to utterly destroy King Agag and the Amalekites, um, he certainly wouldn't have died at the hand of an Amalekite. And you wouldn't have had Haman and Agagite later in Israel's history trying to exterminate the whole nation of the Jews. And so God has good reasons for the things that he tells his people to do and the things he tells us not to do. It's for our own good. And rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. Rebellion is telling God, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm not going to do what you say, God, or what your word says. I'm going to do whatever I want. And I'm going to justify myself before man in what I do in my disobedience to God. And you, as God's children, we cannot do that. Uh, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and insubordination is as the sin uh, of iniquity. And so 
we see that the Amalekites, the Agagites, they become a type for us in the New Testament. They become a type of the flesh. And again, if you, you know, uh, show grace to the flesh, if you make an exception to leave a little bit of the flesh alive and not crucify the, the all the flesh in your life, then that flesh will grow. The appetites of the flesh will grow. And in the end, that flesh will later, uh, that you have catered to, that you have protected, that you have preserved, that flesh will grow and it will eventually destroy you. The sins of the flesh will destroy us. And God tells us there's nothing to do with the flesh but to destroy the flesh. It's like having a baby lion. You know, a little lion is probably really cute. I'm sure it's got sharp teeth and sharp claws, but I'm sure that a little baby lion, if you got it from the time it was an infant, you know, a little baby, little cub, uh, it would probably be like a pet for a while. Uh, and then it would grow big and maybe it would be your pet. Uh, and you would think this giant lion that, you know, grows up, you would tell people, oh, no, he's safe. He's he he's my pet. I've I've raised him from the time that he was a cub. And, you know, he's my he's my personal pet lion. Uh, and then, you know, someday you read in the news that the guy's pet lion ate him and killed him. And then it makes it makes headline news uh, because he went into the cage with the lion and the lion decided he wanted to kill him. Uh, and that's kind of how sin is for us. You know, we 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 start off with sin, the sins of the flesh, and they're little, they're small. They're things that we think we can handle. We think I can handle this sin. I can manage it. I can control it. But the problem is the sin doesn't just stay small. It, it grows. The sins of the flesh continue to grow and grow and grow. And it's like it's like taking the tiger by the tail. At some point, the sin becomes out of control and you can no longer manage it. You, you and I can no longer control uh, the sins of the flesh have taken over our lives. And at that point, uh, sometimes the consequences are literal physical death. There's people whose whose sins lead to death, whether murder, whether suicide, whether drug addiction and overdoses. Uh, or um, uh, they crash their car into a tree because they're drinking and driving. There, there are some sins. They go out and sleep around and they get uh, HIV AIDS and uh, they get sick and they die of some sexually transmitted disease. Um, somebody sleeps around and uh, gets pregnant and then goes and has an abortion and the baby's murdered. So, you know, there are real consequences and sometimes the consequences of the sins of the flesh are literal death. Uh, but even if it doesn't lead to our literal physical death, uh, the sins of the flesh will basically uh, kill our relationship with God. There will be a death of the fellowship that we have with God because God cannot dwell with sin. And so if we choose to continue to practice sin, to live after the sins of the flesh, to not crucify the flesh, then in essence, we pull ourselves away from God and a separation occurs where we grieve the Holy Spirit. And really, you know, we have chosen the sin of our flesh rather than the intimacy of the fellowship and the harmony uh, that God wants to have with us. And so, you know, even if there's not a huge catastrophic consequence for you and you say, well, I'm living after the flesh and everything's fine. Well, yeah, but how close are you to the Lord? How intimate are you in your prayer time? What's your devotional life like? And I would imagine if you're living after the flesh, it's probably pretty empty. You're running on empty spiritually. Uh, and you need to come to that recognition where you say, Lord, I need to come back to you. I need to repent. I, I need to return to my first love and I need to restore 
my harmony and my fellowship with you, Lord. And part of what the Lord tells us to do is to put off the sins of the flesh. The flesh must be dealt with. The flesh must be destroyed. Otherwise, the flesh will grow and grow and grow. And eventually it will seek to destroy us. In the New Testament, in 1 John and chapter 2, we read this about the sins of the flesh and of the lust of the flesh. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15 says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And so this is written to the church. This is written to the Christian. And we're, we're commanded here. Do not love the world or the things in the world. And so maybe the church is who we are at this time during this coronavirus where the world is shut down so that we could demonstrate to the unbelievers the fact that we don't live for the things of this world. We're not in love with the, the things of this world. We don't find our identity in our possessions. We don't find our identity in our occupations. We don't find our identity in the size of our bank account or the size of our stock portfolio like the rest of the world. We don't find our identity uh, on Sunday mornings at the f- football game or uh, Sunday afternoons at the professional baseball game. Uh, that's not where we find our identity. So when all these things are shut down and the malls are shut down and the sports stadiums are shut down, uh, you know, even even the churches are shut down physically, uh, can't meet like we normally would. But we're still Christians. We're still OK. We still have our identity in Christ because our identity is not in the things of this world. We're not concerned and consumed by the things of this world. The world is perishing in the lust thereof, the Bible says. But he who does the will of God will abide forever. We see these things as temporary. We see this world as temporary. We even see our very bodies as temporary. So even if we did get the coronavirus and die, hey, not such a bad thing for the Christian to go to be with Jesus. Uh, so, you know, this is this is a chance for us to let our light shine so that people can see those Christians have something different. They're different than all the rest of my neighbors. All the rest of my co-workers are panicking and falling apart and, you know, can't sleep because they're so anxious and worried about the coronavirus or worried about their jobs or worried about how they're going to pay their rent next month. Uh, we have to worry about our jobs. We have to worry about paying our rent next month. But, you know, we don't put all of our stock in this world. We trust that the Lord is in control. We trust that the Lord is going to take care of us, his people. And Jesus told us to expect things to get worse and worse before the end would come. So we would expect to see things like this happen if we're getting close to the return of Jesus Christ. So this is a fantastic opportunity for such a time as this for us to be able to share our faith with people, for us to be able to pray for people that otherwise perhaps we'd never be able to broach that conversation, that invisible barrier between us and our neighbors or uh, people, co-workers or what what have you, even family members, where you would say, can I pray for you? Can I pray with you? Can we pray about this together? 
Uh, I think there's a tremendous opportunity to get people. You may not be able to get them to come to church on a Sunday morning when we're all meeting here, but you certainly might be able to get them to click on a link and to watch a sermon or to watch a video message. Uh, and uh, I believe that is what's happening. I think we're seeing our numbers uh, from our church online activity go through the roof. And so there and I know this is true for a lot of churches. So uh, this is an opportunity for us to really let our light shine and to show uh, uh, people in this world that we're not of the world. We don't love the world. You know, we don't love the things of the world. We love God and we love people. And uh, the things of the world are passing away. They're perishing. They're all going to burn. And so we put our stock, we put our focus uh, into our relationship with God. That's our focus. We want to lay up treasure in heaven. We want to make sure that we are abiding in Christ and that we are uh, representing him well. And even as King Saul needed to deal with the flesh, so too we as Christians need to deal with the flesh. And this is probably a great opportunity for backslidden Christians to come back to Christ because everything that they put their faith in, their hope in, their Time, treasure, and talents into the things of the world are falling apart right before their eyes. And so this is a a time for people to come back to God who have fallen away from him as well. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul the Apostle tells us this in verse 14 about the flesh. He says, for all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. Galatians 5.16 I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of your flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Verse 18 But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And so we're either walking after the flesh and living for the things of this world, or we're walking after the spirit and we're living for the things of God. It's one or the other. And again, you know, you could be a Christian and you could live after your flesh, but you're going to have a terrible witness. You're going to have a terrible testimony. Your devotional life is going to be shot because you're, you know, you're really not choosing to press in close to God. You're keeping God at arm's length so that you could keep your sin uh, close to you. And it's uh, it's really folly. Why would we choose the sins of our flesh over uh, a relationship with the giver of life, the sustainer of life, the creator of life, the one who died on the cross for our sins, uh, who has written our names in the Lamb's book of life, that we're going to spend eternity with him shortly. This life is short. Even if it's 80 years, it's still short compared to eternity. But verse 17 tells us that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh And these are contrary to one another, so you don't do the things that you wish. Remember, Paul the Apostle said in Romans chapter 7, who will deliver me from my flesh? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Uh, Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am. Uh, You know, the things that I don't want to do, I'm doing. Talking about sin. The things I want to do, like holiness, I'm not doing. And and he was crying out because of of the sins of his flesh. Who will deliver me from this body uh, of of death, this flesh? And so we always have a choice every day when we wake up. Are we going to live for the flesh or are we going to live for God? Are we going to 
seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, or we're going to seek first our own fleshly desires, the things that we want to satisfy uh, our flesh, the things of the world uh, and the flesh and the devil. The choice is ours. And whatever we feed will grow stronger. So if you want to feed your flesh, your flesh is going to grow very, very powerful and your faith is going to grow very, very weak. If you want to deny your flesh and feed your spirit, then your spirit is going to grow very strong. The flesh is going to grow very weak and your faith is going to grow very strong. And then you will be much more able and capable in the strength of the Lord to handle the storms of life and the adversities and the trials that inevitably confront all of us living in this world. Storms come to all of us. The question is whether or not you're a wise man or a foolish man. Jesus said the wise man hears these words of mine and does them. He's likened unto a man who builds his house upon the rock. When the storms come, that house will stand. The foolish man is the man who hears these words of mine yet refuses to do them. He's like the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. The storms come, the winds rage against that house, the waves beat against it, and that house will fall and great will be the fall of that house because it was built upon the sand. And so, really, the choice is yours. The choice is mine every day. Uh, either I'm going to get up and live for the Lord, or I'm going to get up and live for the flesh. Uh, and, and yet, God commands us and he instructs us to live for him, to deny the flesh and to feed uh, the spirit of God that dwells within us. He continues to tell us what the works of the flesh are. In verse 19 of Galatians 5, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, sexual uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy or jealousy, murders, drunkenness, revelries and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control against such things. There is no law. And then he says this in verse 24. Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And so we have this whole list of things of the flesh that we are not to be doing. We're not to be actively uh, practicing these sins that are listed, these sins of the flesh. And if somebody is actively practicing these sins as a lifestyle, uh, Paul says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, but... What we should be practicing is the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Paul the Apostle said, I die daily. And this is no doubt what he meant. I die to my flesh. I crucify my flesh every day. I have to. Otherwise, my flesh will grow stronger. If I pamper my flesh, if I feed my flesh... If I'm, you know, giving attention to to pleasing the flesh, uh, it's a it's a life of self-destruction. Certainly, it's going to hinder your intimate relationship with God. Paul says this in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. This is the crucified life. This is a life where someone is daily dying to his flesh. Jesus says, if any of you desire to be my disciples and to come after me, he said, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and let him follow me. And so if you want to follow Jesus and you want to be all in, you have to first deny yourself, deny the lusts of your own flesh especially when you know God is telling you in his word or the Holy Spirit is convicting you, don't do this, don't watch this, don't go there, because don't hang out with these people, because these these things are bad for you, these things are, are for your flesh, they're feeding your flesh and they're hurting your relationship with me. Uh, it's a choice that, that we all make. And the Lord asks us to crucify the flesh and die to the lust of the flesh, denying ourselves. You know, Satan says, do whatever you want shall be the whole of the law. God's commandments come and say, thou shall not, thou shall, thou shall not, thou shall. And and so a lot of people, they'd rather listen to the voice of the devil who says, just do whatever you want and make yourself happy. It's a lot of people are doing in this day and age. And what they realize is they can have everything they want, do everything they want, and they're still miserable people. Uh, because, in essence, uh, they are not abiding in Christ. They're living after the things of this world and the things that satisfy the flesh. The flesh pushes God away. Sin uh, makes a distance between us and God. So we have to confess our sins, and then he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In Romans, in chapter 13, We read this. Paul the Apostle tells us. Romans chapter 13 about the flesh, verse 11. And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. This is the New Testament. This is written to the church. It's written to you and I, to Christians. He says, let us walk properly. Not in revelry or partying, not in drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. We're to put on the Lord Jesus. We're to put off the works of the flesh and we are to make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Again, you know, Satan is a liar and a deceiver and sin will always cost you more. Then Satan tells you it's going to cost you. He says, it's not a big deal. Go ahead and do it. You're a Christian. You're saved by grace. Do whatever you want. You know, God will forgive you. And then you do it and then your life gets destroyed by sin. And then Satan comes and condemns you and says, oh, you 
you know, stupid idiot. You, you know, you're, you're no good. God can never forgive someone like you. But Satan's the one that told you to do the sin in the first place. And then he comes as your accuser to condemn you. So, uh, God is saying, make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. You know, provision speaks of, of food, of clothing, and of shelter. You know, people feed their sin. They clothe their sin and hide it from other people. Uh, they shelter their sin. They give their sin a home in their lives or in their home. They give it a place. And, and he says, don't do that. Don't feed your sin. Don't clothe your sin. Don't give provision for your sin. Don't shelter your sin. Don't hide your sin. Make no provision for the flesh. For such a time as this, guys, this is the time when everybody's wondering what it, what, what it all means. What happens when I die? You know, it's a great Great question. What happens when I die? For the Christian, we know we go right on to eternal life. We don't fear death. For the non-Christian, they're scared to death about dying, uh, literally and and actually. Uh, and so we have a hope to give them, but we also have to be those who are not living after the flesh, but we are living for the Spirit. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says this. I'll read it to you quickly. But know this. That in the last days, perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power and from such people turn away. Now, Paul just prophetically through the Holy Spirit described our generation. You read all these things. This was not the case uh, around the world up until really the modern times where you look at any civilized society around the world. And this pretty much defines us even here in America. Lovers of money, lovers of self, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient, unthankful, unholy, unforgiving, slanders, unloving, no self-control, despisers of good, on and on. It describes us perfectly. So I believe we are living in the last days. This, this is in the last days. Know this. In the last days, this is what it's going to look like. Well, we read this list, we think, wow, that's exactly what it looks like. A hundred years ago, this is not what our country looked like. Five hundred years ago, this is not what the world looked like. Today, it is what the civilized world, quote unquote, looks like. This defines us and describes us. And we're to turn away from these who are living after the flesh. The other thing that I want to point out related to to Esther, not just uh, uh, her courage and and Queen Esther for such a time as this being put into the position she was to deal with uh, the extermination of her people. Uh, but also the fact that as we are God's people, we have the privilege and the opportunity to go before God and to intercede on behalf of others. As Queen Esther went and she interceded with the king, King Asherharis, to save her people. Uh, so, too, we can go before the king of kings. We could go before God the Father through Jesus Christ and we can intercede for others. In Psalms chapter 66, verse 16, I'll read this to you. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. 
I cried to him with my mouth, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear, but certainly God has heard me, and he has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, who has not turned away my prayer nor his mercy from me. And so the psalmist is saying, because I don't have iniquity in my heart. In other words, I've confessed my sins before God. Look, we're all going to sin. You're going to sin. I'm going to sin. The, the thing is, what do we do with our sins? Do we feed our sins? Do we pamper our sins? Do we... uh uh, make provisions for our sins or do we try and repent of our sins, forsake our sins? Because we're all going to sin. But he says, uh, if I regard sin or iniquity in my own heart, the Lord won't hear because sin provides sin separates us from God. Uh, Isaiah 59, one and two, your sin has separated you from your God, the scriptures say. But he says, certainly God has heard me and has attended the voice of my prayer. Why? Because he's confessed his sins. His heart is clean. He has clean hands and a clean heart before God. So therefore, he can intercede. He can enter into the presence of God, even on behalf of others. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, and this is where we end tonight. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14. We have such a great privilege as God's people, to intercede before his throne. Hebrews 4.14 says this, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. <clears throat> Very powerful couple of verses here in the book of Hebrews. Because we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who can sympathize with us. He never sinned, but he lived in a human body. And so he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to be hurting. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He can relate to you and relate to me. And because of this, he is sympathetic with our weaknesses. And as we come before the throne of grace, Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father, ever to make intercession for you and for me. Jesus took the punishment upon the cross for our sins and died for our sins upon the cross, conquered death, on that Easter Sunday morning where he rose from the dead. And now because we're in Christ, we have access to the Father. We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies, the Bible tells us. And we are able as God's people to come before the holy God, the holy throne of God, to make our petitions known before him. And we could intercede for ourselves, our families, our nation, our loved ones, the church, we could sit, we could uh, go before the Lord and we could sit before the Lord and we could talk to the Lord. We have access to him uh, because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So um, basically, in summary, guys, this is something that's happening for such a time as this. We're his church. We're his people. We're uh, called to represent God to a lost and dying and very dark and perverted world. And uh, the Lord gives us his Holy Spirit. He gives us his word. He gives us his church. And uh, we are overcomers through Jesus Christ. God bless you. 
We all want to thank you for listening. If this message has blessed you, as we all pray that it has, send the link to this podcast to your friends. Working together, we can get Michael's teaching of the whole of God's inerrant word to all those who hunger to hear it. If you would like to see this ministry expand to reach even more of the broken and lost, if you have questions, comments, and prayer requests, email us at coahpodcast at gmail.com. We would be honored to pray for you, as we hope you are praying for us. Good day and God bless from City on a Hill Church to Hatchapi, California.